2: Welcome to the Maris Review. I'm Maris Kreisman, and I'm thrilled to be joined today by Rita Cheng Epig, whose debut novel is called Deep as the Sky, Red as the Sea, and it is wonderful. Rita received her MFA from NYU. Her stories have appeared in McSweeney's Quarterly Concern, Conjunctions, Clark's World, The Santa Monica Review, The Rumpus, bunch of other places, and the best American short stories of 2021, selected by Jesmyn Ward. She lives in California. Welcome, Rita.
1: Hi, I am so thrilled to be on your show. I've been a listener of the podcast for years, so this is is really a dream come true.
2: Oh, thank you. Rita, your debut novel is not the typical debut novel that I usually see coming out of an MFA program. And so I'm wondering if you could just take us through how this idea came to you, what it is, and how you built this intense world of a lady pirate in the 19th century.
1: Yeah, when I first told my agent that I was working on a novel about pirates, I think I was expecting just for her to say, "All right, that's it. I'm ending our contract right here. We're (laughs) not proceeding any further with this relationship." But my novel is based on a uh, historical figure who lived during the early 1800s in what is now uh, the region around Hong Kong, and we could we can call her a pirate queen. She was a woman who commanded by some historians' accounts, the largest pirate fleet ever in the history of, you know, pirates. So this uh, book is a fictionalization of the the events of her life, and it draws also upon Chinese mythology, which is, I'm I'm a big mythology buff, and I I definitely wanted to pull some of those elements into the book.
2: And you do. Let's start out by talking about Shek Young is, what a what a great character. She is someone who didn't want to become a pirate. She had other other plans, but all of the alternatives were not so great. And she really embodies the kind of doing what you have to do to, to survive. Tell me about that.
1: Yeah, and as you're asking this question, I'm realizing I totally missed the second part of your question <laughs> before, but I'll weave it in. So, um, So, Yeah, she is this really, she's lived, you know, uh, she lived a very hard scrabble life that the the, uh, historical figure, she was a peasant girl, there really are no records of her before she joined the fleet, because she was considered a person of no importance by society, right. And there are records that indicate that she might have been herself abducted by pirates when she was a pretty young teenager, young woman. And uh, back then, uh, if you couldn't pay your ransom after the pirates kidnapped you, usually one of two things happened: you either got conscripted into the pirate fleet, so you had to basically become forced labor, or if you, very often, in the case of women, you got sold off to. Um, they they had a this very. Pretty euphemistic name for what was basically a very <laughs> horrible place back then, which was called flower boats. Right, they sold you to the flower boat so that you became a sex worker or like sex, sex slave, depending on how
2: you how you think of it. And um, yeah, in um, the book um, you write, <laughs> yeah, flower boats neither sold flowers or functioned as boats, which made it like hard to picture. But then you talk about it. You have a, a metaphor about a pearl, and and that made sense to me. Just yeah. give me, tell me about that a little bit before we move on. Yeah. I mean, I,
1: you know, so yeah, when I say the neither, they, they didn't sell flowers and they definitely didn't function <laughs> in the sense that they, they never left dock, you know, they were just kind of these like more together um, sandpans that uh, occupied the, you know, the, the coastal region. And, um, and I, you know, I've always thought that the process of extracting pearls was a, kind of violent. Do you know what I mean? It's like, like mm-hmm. this thing is living its per- happy little life by itself. And we go like, oh, we want it, what's inside. And so we cry it open to get this beautiful thing out. And so that image for me, it, it had a certain resonance with this idea of a young girl who was basically forced into, into sexual slavery. And so I guess that's where my mind was when I was thinking about the, the uh, pearl image
2: and and then we see her starting to develop survival skills that kind of turn into an overall kind of savviness so that she is able to truly impress um one of the men who 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 come to the comes to the flower boats to take a look around <laughs> yeah
1: um, to get some metaphorical flowers, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, I, you know, I think one of the things, so I did a lot of research, um, obviously, for for a novel like this, you kind of can't proceed without um, having a pretty solid sense of what the world was like back then. And, um, and unsurprisingly, these settings, these flower boats, were often um, places where a lot of secrets got exchanged. So, you know, there was a way in which, pe- you know, people are drunk, people are kind of engaging in various, you know, acts of, like, I
2: don't know. We'll what would it like. That? Yeah. <laughs>
1: um and and people say things, you know? And so I think one of the things that um this historical figure said was um supposedly very good at according to records is that she was really able to kind of like list, remember what people were saying and then kind of connect the dots to see how this might, you know, be important information um, later on. And um, the, the story goes that this uh, pirate, we'll call him a pirate king, uh, Zhang Ya was like, wait, you're really, really good at this. Like, you're really good at um, strategizing. You're really good at kind of um, the, the diplomacy aspect, you know, because of course she, she worked around people all the time and had to kind of appease people all the time. And um, he was like, all right, you're, you're joining me on my fleet.
2: And it's such a, a weird moment of a, a transition of power. She is both more empowered and less, perhaps. And she has absolutely. to struggle with that through, throughout the, I mean, that's, that's her ultimate struggle, I would say. She, yeah, absolutely.
1: I mean, I think that, you know, it's a little bit like, how do, you, how do you say no? Can you say no? I mean, I think this is a question. Can you say no to somebody who holds a lot more power? than you do, right? I mean, th- I think this is not, this is a question that I think a lot of people are still grappling with these days. This is why when people talk about coercion, when people talk about, um, you know, uh, feeling like, well, I felt like I had to go to, you know, this person's, you know, hotel room or whatever, b- because, you know, she, she, he was this really wealthy um, and among the underworld, um, really respected person, right? He, he, hypothetically, he could have had her killed without, anybody even batting an eye you know at this and so she you're right she absolutely she is in a position of being coerced but at the same time she is he's saying okay if you do everything I tell you to you can have a much more powerful position than you were ever able to hold on the flower boat so it's I think it's um yeah, it was definitely a tension that I was trying to explore in the book, what it's like to be both empowered and really disempowered at the same
2: time. And it seems like for the, the majority of the book, she lives in a constant fight or flight mode. She doesn't know who to trust, enemies all around, maybe even including people on her own ship. And um There's no relaxing.
1: No. Um, I mean, it's kind of funny because I I was working on this novel. um, Even I I was still working on it after the first year of the pandemic. And I remember um, back then I was seeing a lot of things on social media about how um, the, the, the pandemic has made all of us live in constant fight or flight. Well, technically I think in psychology it's fight or fight or flight or freeze but it's the same idea mm-hmm. so, yeah, that your your adrenaline your epinephrine is running and um you're you're kind of reacting to everything in the world every stimulus in the world with this kind of um with this fear with this panic and so um I I think I mean I don't know I don't think it was an intentional decision on my part but I think a little bit of that idea seeped through as I was working on this novel of like how do we you know what is it like for a person who because of the circumstances of her life can never just back the, you know can never just chill out and like you know have a glass of metaphorical wine and you know go <laughs> go take a nap um and um and so I, yeah i think she's definitely i mean i wouldn't call her high strung but she's definitely um she is very very used to um making to or to or sort of like existing on this fight or flight or freeze mode.
2: And it becomes this kind of confidence that I am always jealous of, someone who is a decisive leader who feels empowered to tell other people um, what they should do. And she's so good at
1: it. I think, yeah. I mean, I think that I I think there are moments in the book where she does doubt herself, but I think that's also a very natural human thing, right? Like, I think the only human beings who never doubt themselves, I I I would actually question their judgment a little bit if they never doubted themselves at all. Um, But um, but yeah, I mean, I think certainly if we are to go by um, you know actual uh, historical outcomes, right? She was able to run this giant fleet very successfully for a number of years. And she was able to, I mean, I don't think it's a spoiler because she's a fairly well-known figure, but like, you know, she was basically like, she retired scot-free. The the emperor said to her like, all right, please, please don't, please stop robbing us. And if you, if you stop robbing us, I'll let you keep all your money. And can you just go like, you know, do the equivalent of moving to Florida or whatever. So, um, so I mean, yeah, like if, if we go by actual concrete outcomes, yeah, I would say she did pretty well for
2: herself. Let's take a step back because we're getting into what um, the emperor said and, mm-hmm. and look at the the climate in which all of this is going on. Mm-hmm. I was struck by what her husband says in, in the first couple of pages, like a, a kind of um, philosophy on pirate life and it goes something like men need to be governed but sometimes the governing shouldn't go to the actual people who are in charge um and there's this terrible famine where it then becomes very clear that the only response he says to, to tyranny is is insurrection and uh that sounds right to me. <laughs> um, you know, I,
1: one of the other things I was thinking a lot about while I was writing this book is, so I'm I'm not like one of those people who's really, you know, savvy about like the history of a certain like cartels, you know, um, and certain, but I do, I am aware that like there have been in history, many instances of um, communities where, you know, the government really wasn't Doing it. like you know wasn't doing its job, wasn't taking care of the people, and these um, extra—we'll call them extra governmental organizations—you um, know, okay. or you know, or we can call them gangs or cartels or whatever—kind of stepped in, and they were horrible and brutal. I'm not going to pretend like they were good people who did good things, but also like there was a way in which they, um, they, they told them—I'll I'll put it this way—they told themselves that they were providing a useful service. To the communities that they were in, slash terrorizing, slash whatever again, whatever you want to call it. And so, I I, I was thinking about that kind of um, that kind of mentality and that the, uh, in, you know the actual historical cases of these these kinds of communities um, as I was thinking about the, this character saying yeah because he, you know, unlike Sek Young, who's kind of dragged. Into this life, he was born to. He was born into this really wealthy pirating family, and I I always think it's so funny that back then everybody knew that this was what this family was up to, and nobody did anything. You know, it was like, okay, we're gonna leave. We're gonna leave this Zhang family alone. But um, so I, I can imagine that that's a little bit of the kind of internal mythology within that family that they tell themselves, right? That we're we're doing a service for the people, because the government, sure, and it's true, the the emperor absolutely did not care about the peasants of, um, especially Southern China, because if you, um, in Chinese history, there's been a very kind of, there's a kind of like ideological and cultural divide between the North and the South. And like the Northern, you know, Beijing government is a little bit like, we don't really care what happens in the Southern parts. So, um, so yeah, so I guess that was a very long-winded way of saying that I was thinking about, um, you know, gangs and, you know, mafias and so forth. When I was writing from Zeng Yat's perspective.
2: And, and yeah, one of the things that I guess you don't normally think of uh, when reading a book about pirates is that they also raided villages on land. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's not always the case that they're stealing from the rich to no. give to the poor. I
1: think that's a very fun, I mean, I think that's a kind of nice Pirates of the Caribbean kind of version. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> like, look, whatever. Like, 100%. There's nothing wrong with entertainment. Like sometimes we just want, want to watch something like action filled and like, you know, like kind of uh, exciting. But, but you know, the fact of the matter is I I really try to not, I really, really try to not make Sick Young this kind of like Robin Hood type you know, like I, I, I wanted to be like, look, yeah, it is true. These pirates, very often, they were the only ways that these fe- peasants who were going through a period of famine could feed themselves and their families. And also they like, you know, like they went into villages on land and said, either pay us protection money or we burn your village down. You know, I mean, the, the, so um yeah. So that was a kind of I I I felt like I was trying to walk this tightrope the whole time of like, how do I showcase in some in some ways both the necessity of these pirates and also the fact that these were not they were not doing good things. This wasn't like a fun, high seas romp type of yeah. situation, you know? Yeah.
2: Yeah. The, even the yeah. idea that she could. Have no compunction, she says mm-hmm. about about killing people mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. is is both especially um at that time, I would imagine, like for a woman a, a sign of great strength mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but also, you know, killing people probably right. wrong
1: <laughs> I, I, yeah I would say most most people in the world have a kind of like you know. Uh, agreed on the fact that killing people is generally, yeah, 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 yeah. (laughs)
2: yeah. and And she even has, she even knows the proper ways to, or her, she has a code of how she will treat a prisoner, or how she will get information. Like, one of the things that we learn pretty early on is she already knows that torture doesn't work. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm so it's it's lovely to not have to as a reader mm-hmm. deal with someone inflicting torture but mm-hmm. this isn't because she's being nice <laughs> or kind no abso- sorry go ahead no that's it yeah i mean i you know i think
1: i think people who have done kind of, you know re- really kind of morally questionable things very often tell themselves that they have a kind of code that they live by now what you know whether they actually abide by that code um because she doesn't she often doesn't abide by her own code right like Mm -hmm. she tells herself like these are these are the you know uh, expectations for myself that I set and then it's like you know when when we are in danger when we feel panicked when we feel threatened you know like there's a way in which our lizard brain overrides all of our convictions, or at least, you know, I mean, maybe some people are a hundred percent true to their convictions, but like, I think most people aren't. And we end up doing things that violate um, our own code. So yeah, I I think she thinks she's like, okay, I'm like, I'm a pirate, but I'm a civilized pirate or, you know, like whatever, however she justified it to herself in her own brain. Um, And sometimes she was able to abide by her own code and Sometimes she wasn't, and and I think um, I guess I personally tend to find that that's the case that codes are um, less written in stone than people think they are.
2: And that's a a really good segue into the kinds of problems that she has to face in, in the present day. I mean, in the in in the book, in the present day, sure, yeah. Um, which is she's trying to form an alliance between these other fleets of pirates. And it's a tough thing to imagine that there can be honor amongst thieves, especially those who, so many of whom never even chose to be thieves. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, there's, the Chinese government and the Europeans coming coming on over doing their imperialistic uh, shit. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I it's funny
1: as I'm hearing you talk about those things. Um, I, I was I was kind of thinking to myself like, oh, I bet people would think that I'm like overplotting this, that I'm like throwing in too many um, throwing in too many elements. But like this this is this was historically true. Like like this was a she was uh, dealing with. Um, enemies on all sides, you know, right? Like, because there was um, uh, dissension within her own fleet. But, you know, that's always the case when you are any kind of leader, there's always going to be dissension within your your own ranks. Um, but yeah, the Chinese government was hunting her and the Europeans were like, no, we need to like take you out of commission. One of the really, sorry, I'm going to segue, you know, go go off on a tangent here, but um, uh, one of the really interesting documents I read in preparation for writing the novel when I was doing research is um, was a manuscript written by, I think it was an English merchant, written to the English government at the time that was basically saying, these are my observations of the pirate fleets in China. We I, I am petitioning you to send me boats and send me men because we need to take them down because they are seriously cutting into our, I mean, profit margin, essentially. And so, um, yeah, so like all, all of these things were in fact happening at the same time. And I'm sorry, I've forgotten your original question. I'm very sorry.
2: Uh, I, um, I did too. So, <laughs> But I, I'm happy to learn that because with every step in this book, you have to think as you're reading it, how does she know all of this stuff? Like even in terms of like the fighting, how they fought, that the idea that the spear can be more practical than than the cutlass. Tell me about all of that. Combat. All the geeky combat stuff. Yeah. <laughs>
1: um, yeah, I, I actually recently wrote a, a thing for the Lit Hub newsletter about how to write a fight. So a little um a little background. I I um, I took martial arts classes for many, many years. Um and um and the uh in the particular style of um uh, karate that I was doing, you start using weapons after you I mean obviously not sharpened weapons, right? Like we weren't trying to look like, at <laughs> yeah. one another with like sharpened spears. But but you 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 start to um work with weapons at a later stage in your in your training. And so like it, it's a lot of stuff from basically stuff that like my various instructors Yelled at me to impress upon me when I was when I was in these classes. So, like for example, like you know, there's you know the the bow, which is like the very la- large, long fighting staff. It's like six six feet tall. You would never like so. On one hand, it's much easier to use because there are no sharp, pointy edges, right? It's hard to like seriously hurt yourself with it if if the weapons were sharp. You know, like the other uh, weapons were sharpened. But you would never ever use a bow if you're like in if you're trying to like fight somebody like in an alleyway or something, because that would completely limit your range of movement. Like, how are you gonna like swing that thing around? And so um, so yeah, so like I, I think I was I was pulling upon some of my um earlier experiences and the things that um I learned along the way. And then I actually also was also was able to um talk to a couple of my former instructors to just ask questions like if if you needed to do this. Right. If you needed to disarm somebody with a rifle, how would you how would you go about it? And man, they are good. you know what I mean. Like this is <laughs> like they are good at knowing what to do in these situations and talking about these things.
2: That's a whole other
1: book. That is a um, whole other
2: book. Yeah. <laughs> um, wondering if you can take a, uh, a moment to talk about the other big thread in the book, which is often. Uh, if not every other chapter, um, there are many separate chapters about, help me pronounce this. It's okay. M- Mazu. Mazu. Mm-hmm. So, so the idea of Mazu as, as the, the goddess, is that the right? Mm-hmm. Of, of the sea and someone who Sekyung feels akin with hmm yeah, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I'm a huge mythology buff. Like
1: I was like I in high school, I had this, um I read all of the Edith Hamilton Greek myths, and like, I like, you know, like highlighted things on every page. So I, I've always been like this. and, um, and the sea God is Mazu is uh, actually still a widely widely worshipped um figure in many parts of Asia. So like um, I was born and raised in Taiwan. And um, if you go to Taiwan, every other block there is a temple to her. There is, you know, um, they they sell like you know tote bags and like cookies and things with you know her her image branded on it. So she's very much a part of day to day life. I think in many parts of in many parts of Asia, and um, I found out uh, during the course of my research that pi- the pirates also worshipped her, um, which. I guess seems obvious in retrospect because, like, when you spend all of your time at sea, like, what else are you going to worship? Like a mountain god? No, you're going to worship a sea goddess, you know. And so, um, so uh, I was like, okay, well, I want to, I want to show that, you know, like pirates, people tend to don't tend to not think of them as particularly spiritual people, but the fact of the matter Mm. is, like, these pirates, at least during this time period in this region. Um, because so many of them were Fisher folk who had to turn to piracy out of desperation, they brought their beliefs, they brought their spiritual practices over to piracy after they became pirates. So I was like, okay, I wanna write, I, I wanna I wanna give a nod to to, to that aspect of their their reality. But then as I was writing, and this was, I mean, I, I really have to give the credit to my agent Michelle, who like she I was putting all of these snippets of myth in the book. And I remember during one of the um one of the drafts when we went through, she was like, What if you just turn in this into a, almost like a more formal element? Like, what if you actually exploded these myths a little bit, a little bit more? And actually, that was when I realized that um it, this has less to do with the myths themselves and more to do with how sick Young is using these myths to try to make meaning of her own life and also sometimes to justify her own bad behavior or her own misdeeds, right? because ultimately what are myths, right? Myths are things that are meant to instruct. You, you know what I mean? Like people use myths to kind of like guide their lives, to explain certain phenomena, to kind of like myths create a a sense of order and meaning to the world that may not actually be there. And so, um, so I was like, oh, it's not just about the myths. It's about how the main character thinks about the myths. And, um, uh, you know, it's about how the myths are refracted through Sekyung's POV. And so once that kind of clicked into place for me, I think I was able to weave the two together in a better
2: way. You do it beautifully. And, and another aspect of th- that seems very related to the idea of trying to impose order on one's life is that there's a fortune teller who poems rather than cards or tea leaves or, or whatever else as a way to perhaps tell the future. And so I'm wondering if you can tell me about where those poems come from, yeah. how the character's interpretation of those poems informs informs the rest of the work. Yeah, thank you so much for bringing that up. I think this is the
1: first time an interviewer has actually asked me about those uh, those little poems. So again, this is actually based on a real cultural practice. Um, if you go into any like any temple in many parts of East Asia, certainly Taiwan where I grew up, um, they have these giant, like these fortune sticks, and each stick has like a number on it. And so you you pick a stick. Um, in, in the past, sometimes they had small versions that you like you shake it and one stick comes out, but it's the same idea. And then each stick each each number is um corresponds to a a certain fortune and that sometimes not not always but sometimes the fortunes would take the form of a what is it called like a quatrain like a like a four line (laughs) poem yeah so like it would take the form of um a a quatrain or again i don't know the right word and you interpret your fortune based on what the poem says now in the case of this this fortune teller she has memorized all of the poems associated with all of the numbers but that's of course like we, we know like epic poets have been doing this you know sure. have been doing this since the beginning of time so that's not actually that implausible and um yeah and so where where these are actual poems that are thankfully not copyrighted because they were written hundreds and hundreds of years ago in China by famous Chinese poets um, and for people who are really, really into and familiar with dynastic Chinese poetry, I apologize because I am not a scholar and I, I translated these poems into English the best that I could. But I'm not, you know, like they have people who get PhDs in how to translate these poems. So I, um, I, I sincerely apologize if I've made a mockery of these poems by, you know, doing it with my crap modern day uh, Mandarin, but yeah, that's, that's where they come from. These are real poems from real poets. And uh, I kind of, I, you know, like, I, I think it's actually a really cool idea, right? Like, I mean, fortune telling us all about symbols, like what are tarot cards? It's like, Oh, it's, you know, it's a sun. Like, what does the sun mean? And poetry
2: is all about symbols. <laughs> so, Absolutely. And Rita, I think that gives, I th- I'm hoping that gives listeners just a taste of all of the work you did compiling this book, all of the action and adventure in this book and philosophical grappling. It's its uh, a wonderful read and thank you. Oh, so thank you before well. we go, mm-hmm. please recommend some books for us.
1: Yes, so um, I just, I'm like, 10 pages 20 pages away from uh, the end of uh, Mariana Enríquez our of night and i i mean oh. like i've been a fan of mariana enríquez for years like i read um the dangers of a uh, smoking bed and also before that things we lost in the fire and um i'm i'm just such a fan i don't i don't even like horror i'm terrified of horror but like she's so good that I willingly risk insomnia in order to read her books. So I don't know if she's listening. This is how much I respect you. Um, <laughs> and uh, and uh, another book that I recently read. This is more in the science fiction fantasy genre because I I quite like um, good SFF uh, novels as well. But it's by it's coming out in a month. I was able to read a galley of it. It's by a, a, a Sri Lankan writer named Vajra, uh, and I keep forgetting to look up how to pronounce this name. I feel terrible. Chandra Sekera, S-E-K-E-R-A, and it's called The Saint of Bright Doors, and it is just a really trippy, trippy, um, but I think it has some really smart things to say about colonialism. It has really smart things to say about parent-child relationships, and I think it has really smart things to say about the legacy that colonialism leaves on history and the versions of history that we transmit to to the future. So those are my two book recommendations for for today.
2: Thank you so much, Rita. Deep as the sky, red as the sea. Out now. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Maris Review and check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today and please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts